As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A dozen years after the nuclear disaster at Fukushima, Japan has a plan to release tremendous amounts of slightly radioactive water into the ocean. We find that opposition from Japan's neighbors is more about politics than about public health. And for many wine experts, rosé is not a real wine. But it couldn't be more real for sellers of it all over the world, particularly the pale, crisp stuff from Provence. We look at how rosé became so central to global summer culture. But first... In Saudi Arabia this weekend, dozens of countries came together to talk about the prospect of an end to war in Ukraine. Kyiv's American and European allies were in attendance. So too were Chinese, Indian and Brazilian delegations. One notable absence, Russia itself. Under discussion was the 10-point peace plan of Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky, who sent a video message ahead of the meeting insisting that international order be restored. No concrete action came out of the summit, but the attendance of China, who missed the first round in June, was seen as a diplomatic prize for Ukraine. Meanwhile, amid weekend news of drone attacks by air on Moscow and by sea on a Russian oil tanker, the grinding war on land continues slowly. I can't put it any better than the phrase that came to me from a senior military official where he said that it's 50-50. That's to say that Ukrainian forces are pushing forward a little bit in some areas and they're retreating a little bit in some areas. Tim Judah is a special correspondent for The Economist and has recently been reporting from near the front line in Ukraine. Nothing really dramatic, but there's plenty of action along the whole 1,000 kilometers or so of the front line. And so what does that 50-50 look like on the ground then? You know, what we're talking about is really just a few kilometers here and there. I mean, Hannah Malia, who is the deputy defense minister, said last week that Ukrainian forces had liberated an additional two square kilometers of territory around Bakhmut and around 13 square kilometers towards Berdyansk and Melitopol in the Zaporizhia region in the south. This offensive began just over two months ago at the beginning of June. And the Ukrainians are saying that they've liberated some 200 square kilometers. But, you know, Ukraine is a really vast country and the Russians hold about 20% of it and 200 square kilometers is really not very much. And Tim, you got very close to the front line in recent days. What was it like? What was the feeling on the ground? 
Well, I've been to the Eastern Front and to the Southern Front. The Eastern Front, that's a kind of whole arc of territory which goes down from the Russian border through towns like Izum, Liman and Kupyansk. All three of them occupied until last September. And now they're still pretty miserable places. I mean, there are not many civilians who've come back. There are quite a lot of soldiers. There hasn't been very much reconstruction. The bridge in Kupyansk is still down. There's sort of a temporary sort of wooden bridge that you have to sort of drive across gingerly and people are pretty frightened there's still quite a lot of shelling in Kupyansk over the weekend there was a Russian missile or shell which hit a blood transfusion center and so once you got to this this continuous front line that you describe what was it like what were people telling you well, the interesting thing is to talk, to, especially in these areas close to the front line, is to talk to soldiers to try and ascertain the levels of morale. I mean, six months ago, morale was absolutely sky high. I certainly wouldn't say that morale was sky high now, but it's still pretty solid, I have to say. This was a unit I went to see. Its home base is in Transcarpathia, which is in the far west of the country. And they were actually doing a training. They took me with like 15 other soldiers. We piled onto the top of an infantry fighting vehicle. The soldiers that I saw who were doing the training were there in really quite large numbers. Most of these men were people who had just been mobilized. And the reason that they were there was because the casualty rate wounded rather than killed, but still men who'd been taken out of action was so high from the early part of the offensive that they'd had to mobilise these men to replace them. The number of dead is, of course, a closely guarded secret. But, you know, I've been to check several cemeteries across the country. And the new military cemeteries are really growing very fast. And as far as morale on the ground, how are the soldiers feeling? I asked one soldier, would you describe it as grim determination? And he goes, well, I wouldn't call it a joyful determination, that's for sure. But he said, and others said, you know, they realise that this is going to be a long war. They're angry with people who built up expectations that it would all be over by summer. They said that they, as soldiers at the front, knew all along that this was not going to be a sort of a quick offensive like the Kharkiv one was last September, where the Russians were driven out of huge amounts of territory very quickly. And the Kherson one, which came a little bit later, which was also very rapid. They said, you know, the reality on the ground had changed. They knew that. They knew it was going to be a long slog. But they say that's their reality and the determination is still there. And in terms of that slow advance since the the counteroffensive began, what does that look like? Well, the challenges have been, you know, written about quite extensively. But when you talk to soldiers on the ground, it kind of really brings it into uh, focus. What the Russians have done is they've had time to build several lines of major defences. The most deadly things, they say, are a combination of literally millions of mines, drones which transmit live pictures back to their operators, and loitering munitions, including Lancet missiles. But, you know, it's especially the mines that are holding people up. And as one man told me, he said one of the worst things are where you don't step on a mine, you hit a tripwire, which you can't see, especially at night. And then that sets off a whole chain of mines along a whole line. Combat medics are now saying that most of the casualties today are from mines. They're not from artillery, which they were before. 
So I guess I'm just trying to square all of this with the high-level stuff that we hear. For example, from the talks that were going on in, in Jeddah this weekend, where does the counteroffensive go from here, and, and how does it fit into that, that wider diplomatic picture, do you think? I think the big difference from months past is that there's a sort of widespread realization that this is going to be a long conflict, that the Russian lines are probably not about to collapse, and that this is going to go on for a long time. And that's the feeling you get from the ground. But I think that that's probably also the way it looks on the diplomatic front. We had this weekend the meeting in Jeddah, which were dubbed peace talks, but they're not really peace talks at all because, you know, the Russians were not there. But what they're really about is garnering support from non-committal countries from the global south, and significantly China was there. And this is not just, you know, the Americans and European allies sort of rounding up countries of the global south and say, you know, come on, you've got to support the territorial integrity of Ukraine. The Ukrainians themselves are being active on this front as well. So, for example, in two weeks, there's going to be a diplomatic plus civil society mission going to India because the Ukrainians would very much like support from India. And not only would they like support from India, I think they would like Indian weaponry as well because, you know, they need a constant supply of weaponry and especially ammunition from wherever they can get it. And if this is going to go on for a long time, stocks in various countries are going to go run critically low. So they've got to start thinking about where to get weaponry from elsewhere. It seems very distant for people on the ground. I mean, soldiers are very concentrated on their own sectors and they don't really know that much of what's happening elsewhere. And I think that's the same for people who live in those villages and towns close to the front line. I mean, it's a kind of day-by-day existence. They're worried about artillery and shelling and diplomatic meetings in Jeddah are a very, very long way away from their current realities. Tim, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Twelve years ago, a massive undersea earthquake occurred in the Pacific Ocean, just east of the Fukushima region of Japan's largest island, Honshu. A major earthquake has hit Japan. Live coverage from my helicopters in the Sendai area, where tsunami has engulfed part of the region and has washed away houses and farms. The quake created a tsunami that arrived on Japan's coast within half an hour killing thousands and destroying just about everything standing in its path. And in its path was the Fukushima nuclear plant, where the wall of water triggered another disaster. Police radios crackled with the news of the latest explosion at the Fukushima nuclear plant. We had to get indoors to avoid possible contamination. First we were moved to higher ground because of the fears of a new tsunami. Now, as the news has come through of another nuclear explosion, we're being moved indoors. These are very nervous times. Japan is still dealing with that cleanup operation, and its plan is creating serious tensions with other countries in the region. The huge earthquake that accompanied the tsunami shut off the grid, and then the tsunami itself leapt over the seawall and swamped the emergency generators that should have kicked in to cool the plant. 
Dominic Ziegler is The Economist's Singapore bureau chief and writes Banyan, our column on Asian affairs. So three reactors melted down. There were hydrogen explosions that ripped apart a good section of the site. And then quite a lot of radioactive water flowed into the Pacific. It was only heroic work by many of the nuclear plants' workers that helped prevent an even worse accident from happening. And now, a dozen years later, the cleanup is still going on. And what is it that still needs cleaning up? The biggest issue is what to do with the contaminated water that's been used to cool the fuel rods and fuel debris. And as well as that water, a lot has fallen as rain or it's come through the groundwater from uphill. All of that water is radioactive. There are 64 radionuclides in the water. These are unstable forms of chemical elements that release radiation. And an advanced filtration process has removed 62 of those. The remaining radionuclide that matters at the Fukushima site is tritium, as it can damage DNA. And so what to do about the tritium then? So the plant's operator, TEPCO, proposes diluting the water that it's collected and to release that 500 Olympic-sized swimming pools worth of water into the ocean over the course of three decades. And that's a plan that's been backed by the Japanese government as well as the UN's International Atomic Energy Agency. The agency says that the impact on humans and the environment would be negligible. And they're right. The concentration of tritium in the Fukushima plant water is about seven times less than the guidelines the WHO sets for drinking water. And as one expert at Curtin University in Perth said to us, a lifetime's consumption of fish caught off Fukushima wouldn't even add up to the amount of radioactivity you'd get from eating a single banana. So the plan is good. The plan will be carried out. The plan almost certainly will be carried out, but in the face of opposition both locally and internationally. Locally, it's fishermen and tourism operators who really worry about further dent to the Fukushima brand. Even before any water has been dumped from the plant, China and South Korea have banned seafood from Fukushima and from its neighboring prefectures. So the biggest opposition here then is from Japan's neighbors? Yes, that's right. And already some of them are talking about a total ban on Japanese seafood imports. But the motives of neighboring countries are sometimes in question. China's concerns really have to do with nationalist politics rather than any scientifically grounded fear about the safety of the water. Communist Party officials have been using this row really to get at Japan, which they think of as being insufficiently contrite about its own imperialist past. The subtext is also that Japan objects to some of China's more assertive ambitions in the region. At the same time, when the government's chief spokesman in Beijing accuses Japan of treating the ocean as its own private sewer, which were his words, it's particularly rich since China is a great polluter itself in terms of plastics, untreated sewage and the like. And uh, one of their nuclear plants, Yangjiang, certainly releases more tritium into the seas than the amount that's being proposed by the Fukushima water release. And he mentioned also objection on the part of South Korea. There are loud objections in South Korea too, not from the government. The president, Yoon Suk-yul, is really committed to rebuilding strained ties with Japan. And so he plays down the risks of the water release. But, you know, there are elections coming up in parliament and the opposition, the left-wing opposition, is keen to whip the issue up in order to get at President Yoon. But what about opinion at home? What, what do the Japanese think about this plan? Opinion in Japan is fairly finely balanced. There has historically and certainly since the Fukushima disaster been a strong opposition to anything nuclear. 
But at the same time, energy bills have been rising, particularly since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I think the opposition to nuclear power is slowly softening. There are signs that the public are more accepting now of water being released at the Fukushima plant. And that somewhat cheers Japan's nuclear industry, which is still recovering from the disaster. Bear in mind that its uh, reputation was severely damaged uh, by its mishandling uh, of the accident back then. It has tried to clean up its act. The government, too, has overhauled its regulatory apparatus. Both the industry and government are very keen to see Japanese public opinion swing in favour of nuclear. And it is very much their hope that that swing is happening now. Dom, thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much, Jason. When temperatures reach 26 degrees in Britain, a few things start to happen. People take off a lot of their clothes. They flock to parks and swimming pools. They get very sunburned. They complain about being unable to sleep at night. They stop doing chores. They stop cooking. And they start buying rosé wine. Rachel Lloyd is The Economist's deputy culture editor. 26 degrees Celsius is important as it's the exact point at which sales of the pink stuff outpace sales of red or white wine. According to Majestic, a British wine shop, during a heatwave last year, they sold a bottle every 12 seconds. Rosé is the ultimate summer tipple. There's nothing greater on a warm Friday evening than clocking off work and opening a chilled bottle of rosé. It's incredibly refreshing, And that's partly because it's more acidic than other wines and it's often got a taste of strawberries or citrus fruit. That acidity makes your mouth salivate. Therefore, you can taste foods better. But at the same time, the wine is not overpowering. It's not got lots of tannins. It's a great accompaniment to barbecues, to garden parties, to salads, to fish, anything you want, really. When we think of rosés today, we probably think of the pale salmon, sort of very chic rosés. And they are made in Provence, which is rosé's epicentre. France makes 35% of rosé, so it's the world's leading producer. It's also the world's leading consumer of rosé. And a third of the bottles drunk there are pink in colour. That's both by locals and by tourists. But the drink has gone global as well. Exports have increased by nearly 500% in the past 15 years. Chateau d'Esclan, a leading producer, sells 10 million bottles every year. Whispering Angel, their marquee product, is America's favourite French wine. Rosé's long been the target of derision. Part of that is that some rosés historically have been very sweet, not very nice, a bit cloying... There's other reasons. One of them is that it's pink and it's been traditionally marketed as an alcoholic drink for women. It has a few offensive monikers, one of which is bitch diesel for that exact reason. Another one is Hampton water because it's drunk by wealthy Manhattanites who go to the beach for the summer. Sasha Lachine, the head of Chateau d'Esclan, says that when he was first trying to bring wines such as Whispering Angel to the market, snooty wine buyers slammed the door in his face. They would say that people don't want to drink rosé, it's not a serious wine, it's a Coca-Cola wine. 
In order to understand a little bit more about rosé and why the snobs are wrong, I went to Berry Brothers, Britain's oldest wine retailer, to try some and to speak to some of their experts. It's the first time I've tasted wine like that. So what you'll notice if you do slurp your wine is it hits all the different parts of your mouth. So actually things like acidity are really apparent. And you can I sat down with Barbara Drew, a master of wine at Berry Brothers and Rudd, to talk about some of the prejudices against rosé. I think that there is perhaps something there of pink, we will sell it to women. I still sadly notice a little bit of this, not so much in the wine trade, but just a sense um, sometimes from customers of, you know, oh, rosé, oh, I'm not sure about that. It's not a serious wine. You know, it's not a wine that can age. It's not a wine that I want to spend too much time thinking about. And that's a shame because there are beautiful wines. Some of them can indeed age and they've been made with the same care and attention as a white wine or a red wine. So I think, yeah, I think sometimes that we're missing out on an opportunity both within the industry and customers to really appreciate something that's, that's well made. In the age of social media, rosé has come to be seen as very trendy. It's inspired various social media crazes. You might have seen hashtag Froze. Add one and a half cups frozen strawberries, half a bottle of rosé, and one tablespoon of sugar to a blender. Which is frozen rosé. You might have seen hashtag rosé all day, which is kind of a celebration of day drinking. You might even have seen hashtag brosé. Hey you, yeah you, put away that shrimp. which is used by men who are unabashed lovers of the drink. Celebrities have got involved. Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie famously co-owned a vineyard together. Kylie Minogue has released her own line of rosés. But those who dismiss rosé as a mere fad are misguided. Rosé dates back to classical times. The ancient Greeks drank a version of rosé because they didn't macerate their wines for as long which means they didn't expose the grape juice to the skins. And it was the ancient Romans who are responsible for the cultivation of grapevines in Provence. Barbara, too, advocated for drinking rosé however you want. If it's very warm outside and I'm enjoying a glass of wine, I will sometimes put an ice cube in it as well, and people say, you're a master of wine. Okay, well, I also take milk in my tea, and I'm sure there are people who will say that is not how you should enjoy tea, but that is how I like to enjoy my tea. This idea that someone else should tell you how to enjoy a drink is very peculiar, it's very British. Some pleasures stand the test of time, and you should enjoy it however you want. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you really are missing out. But dive in with the deal we've got at the moment, a free 30-day digital subscription. Just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer or click the link in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit Moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.